Hear now the word of the Lord from Psalm chapter 2. There the psalmist writes, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is kindled quickly. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it is good to be with you. I'm so thankful for the gracious invitation of your pastor and pastors and the elders of this church. It is our second time here, as Dr. Grant noted, and uh, we've watched online and worshiped with you in that way as well. Um, I have been invited to, to speak at numerous Reformation conferences, other special celebratory Lord's Day services and conferences, but this is the first time, first time I've been invited to speak after the most contentious election in the history of certainly my lifetime. So I just want to thank your pastor for, for blessing me with that opportunity. Um, but as, as he and I talked about what we might preach on and not knowing where we would be today, um, uh, he mentioned that you all are about to begin a sermon series on the Psalms, a short sermon series on the Psalms. And so we thought it might be good to go to one of the early Psalms. And I recommended that we maybe do Psalm 2. He thought that was a good idea. And so in God's providence, we are looking this morning at Psalm uh, 2. The Psalter has been said uh, by John Calvin to be an anatomy of the human soul. It, it teaches us how we are to think. It teaches us how we are to pray. It teaches us uh, how we are to listen to the Lord and how our hearts are to listen to his voice and that's especially pertinent in a day when there are a thousand voices vying for our attention. Um, I feel that acutely. There are a thousand voices on any given subject telling you what you're supposed to believe, how you're to respond, what you should do, who you should be with, why you should do what you should do. And it's overwhelming. And, and I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all feel that it's, it's overwhelming, all the voices flooding our minds and hearts from outside, um, in our society. And so it's important for us as we consider what we're being called to do and what we're hearing and what we're being told that we come again to the scriptures and we learn to listen to the voice, the, the only voice that really matters, to the voice of the Son of God. And Psalm 2 becomes so important to us because it is a psalm of voices. There are four voices in this psalm that we're going to look at. But before we do uh, set those out, I want to note that Psalm 2 stands at the head of the Psalter in a very intentional way. It belongs together with Psalm 1. It is the entryway into the book of Psalms on the whole. It was strategically put together in that way. 
Um, there is historical evidence that Psalm 2 may have actually been one part with Psalm 1, that it might have been a single psalm. And, and you'll see very quickly how these two psalms fit together. Psalm 1 starts with those words, blessed is the man who does not walk after the path of the wicked nor sit in the way of scorners. And, and that man is blessed. The man that listens to God's word is blessed. And then Psalm 2 ends almost the same way Psalm 1 begins. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Um, it has also been said that Psalm 1 and 2 are sort of the pillars into the temple of the worship of God. And so with those things in mind, it's helpful for us to look at this this morning and, and to hear the voices that, that are pervasive throughout the psalm. There is first the voice of the nations, and they're antagonistic. They're antagonistic against the Lord and against Christ. They, they hate the Messiah. They hate, they hate the rule and reign of God. Um, the second voice that we'll see this morning is the voice of God speaking in derision in reaction to the voice of antagonism from the nations. And then there's the voice of the sun in verses 7 through 9. And, and it is a voice of declaration, who he is, what, what God has done to make him king, what he has done to, to be king of kings and lord of lords in redemptive history. And then there is finally the voice of the psalmist. And it is a voice of evangelism and a voice of response. There are those four voices, and, and notice that as the psalmist opens here in Psalm 2, he does so with this rhetorical question, why do the nations rage? He's not looking for an answer. He, he knows the answer. He says, why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot in vain? Uh, he knows that all of the antagonism, all of the hatred of the nations for God and for the Lord Jesus Christ are vanity. They're pointless. And yet, you see something, don't you, as you move from Psalm 1 into Psalm 2, that, that this is the ultimate outcome. In Psalm 1, we're called to meditate day and night on the law of the Lord. We're called to be in his word, to pour over it, for it to dwell in us richly. We're, we're called to be people of the word. And, and here, the, the men and women and boys and girls of the world, they're meditating also. But they've collectively come together to plot against the rule and the reign of the triune God. It's interesting. There is, there is a progression here. Um, Gerhardus Voss, the great Princetonian theologian, noting that the word counsel here carries the idea to be crowded closely together for confidential deliberation. Here, all the nations of the world have one goal, one focus. Isn't that interesting? What, what brings the nations together? deliberating together against the Lord and against his anointed. Um, you see this, don't you, when, when the Messiah, the anointed, comes and, and he is about to enter in on his suffering. And the gospel writers tell us that Pilate and Herod, who were at enmity with each other, suddenly become friends. Isn't that interesting? When, when they are intent on coming together with the purpose of destroying the Lord's anointed bursting apart the yoke. That's literally the idea, the yoke between the Lord and his Messiah. They come together. The nations come together with one purpose, and yet it's in vain. Now, I've already noted that they are in uh, verse 3. It is the idea of the yoke of the Lord. And, and the nations here convince themselves that, that it would be a burden to serve the Lord. Think of that. Why? 
Why do the nations hate the triune God so much? They, 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 they've convinced themselves that the yoke of Christ would be a burdensome and oppressive yoke. And yet, yet the psalmist is giving us the sense that there is a restlessness. There's a restlessness about the nations. They are plotting, they are scheming, they are perpetually coming together, trying to figure out a way to stomp out the rule and the reign, to break the yoke from their neck. And, and I, I wonder, I, I think it's probably quite intentional that Jesus, in Matthew 11, is, is drawing off of this imagery when he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isn't that interesting? What the nations find to be a burden, the Savior says, My yoke is easy. You will find rest for your soul. And yet, the voice of the nations is the voice of vain plotting. Now, notice, secondly, the psalm moves to another voice. In verses 4 through 6, there's the voice of God. Um, I sometimes think when we survey the landscape of what's going on in society and we consider everything that's happening and all the circumstances and, and certainly this year the political turmoil, we, we sometimes act as though we, we've forgotten that God is not shaken by these things. You understand that, right? The infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God is not shaken. He's not moved. He's not, he's not wringing his hands. Um, I want to read two quotes to you. First, uh, Dr. James Boyce says this, What is God's reaction? God does not tremble. He does not hide behind a vast celestial rampart, counting the enemy and calculating whether or not he has sufficient force to counter this new challenge to his kingdom. He does not even rise from where he is sitting. He simply laughs at these great imbeciles. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't even rise. He simply laughs. It's the only time in Scripture, you know this, I'm sure, it's the only time in Scripture where we're told of the Lord laughing. Um, he is not moved. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way, God is not in a state of panic about what's happening in his world. He is not in a panic about what happens politically or socially. He doesn't sit in the throne in glory, wringing his hands and fearfully saying, they're going to topple me from my throne. That's so important that we understand that. Because if we forget that, our hearts become unsettled. You know, the voice of God is there to stabilize the hearts of Christians. You'll remember how the psalmist puts it elsewhere in the Psalter. He says, even if the mountains should fall into the depths of the sea, we will not fear. Why? Why will we not fear? Because God is not wringing his hands. No one's going to topple him from the throne. Um, that is vital for us to make it through life with the confidence that our God rules. Now notice that he laughs and it's a voice of derision. He, he holds the nations in derision. He, 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 he understands that, that men of 70 years whose breath is in their nostrils can do nothing to hurt his purposes and plans. Um, you get the sense of the, the foolishness of men, that they think in some way they can thwart the plan of the Almighty God. Um, notice verse 5. The writer says, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king 
on Zion, my holy hill. Now, we have just come out of a period of intense political frustration. We're still in that period in some ways. And, and you may be incredibly disheartened or incredibly elated, but, but here's, what, here's what the voice of God would say to us today. There is God's chosen king, and he is king of kings, and he is sitting on the throne, and God has put him there. And the Lord Jesus Christ is forever seated on that throne. Um, he is the eternal king. He is not going to spend one day off the throne of God. He is upholding all things by the word of his power. The writer of Hebrews says he is carrying the world along by the word of his power. Um, that is good news. That is good news. And it is right for us to listen to the voice of the one who sits in heaven and laughs. But notice there is yet a third voice in this psalm. Notice verses 7 through 8. And this is, in one sense, the most important part of this psalm. Uh, we may sometimes do ourselves a disservice if we've been in churches that do um, uh, reciprocal readings of the psalms. We tend sometimes to miss the flows and the breaks. And, and here we're moving to a new voice. And it's the voice of the Son. Notice verse 7. I will de- tell the dec- decree the Lord has said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Now, um, there have been writers who have speculated that this is uh, David speaking, and then David speaking typologically of Christ. Uh, John Calvin held that view. There are many other writers who are right, and John Calvin is wrong in this instance, and I can't argue with him because he's not here, but that this is uniquely Jesus speaking. This is the Spirit of Christ speaking through David prophetically about the inner Trinitarian relationship that he has with his father. And we know that because this psalm is is strewn throughout the pages of the New Testament. It is one of the most cited psalms in the New Testament. It's in Hebrews chapter 1. The father says to the son, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It is in Acts when the apostles are being persecuted so severely in Acts chapter 4. And they turn to the Lord in prayer and they say, why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot in vain? God has set his king on Zion, and the son has said, you have begotten me. Now, um, it's important for us to understand that Jesus is the eternally begotten son. He doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't have an end. There's no point where he's less than God. The son is always God. He is equal with the father in power and glory. He is the eternal son, and, and we want to be settled on that. And yet there's another sense where in this decree, God is telling us something very specific about redemptive history. He's telling us that in redemptive history, the covenantal purposes of God are brought to fruition in Jesus Christ. And through his resurrection and ascension, he is declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. So that as the son of David, as the one that God promised would sit on the throne forever... He's come, and and he's come as the the last Adam. He's come to do what Adam failed to do. Um, You know, everything about this psalm is meant to draw our minds back to Genesis, where Adam was meant to take dominion. He was God's king. He was meant to exhibit God's rule in this world. There would be no nations raging. There would be no people plotting in vain if Adam had done what God had called Adam to do in the covenant of works. And yet, 
where Adam failed, the last Adam comes in, and he's God's eternal son. He's the eschatological son. He comes to do everything Adam failed to do, and he comes to take the curse that Adam brought on himself and all mankind. And, and in the resurrection, and you have to listen very carefully, in the resurrection, Jesus is regenerated. He's regenerated. He, he issues in the new creation through his resurrection. He brings about and secures the regeneration of all things, but he himself is brought from death to life. He is, he is regenerated. He is begotten. And that means if we've experienced regeneration by God's grace, by the working of God's spirit, if we've, if we've experienced the new birth, then that is based exclusively on the fact that the son himself experienced a new birth in the resurrection. And he is now declared to be the son. And the today there is a today of resurrection and ascension when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father and he was given a throne and dominion and authority. And, and, and Jesus is no doubt picking up again on this psalm when at the end of Matthew's gospel, after he's risen and he's with his disciples, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Well, he already had all authority as the eternal son. And yet, as the last Adam, he has gained all authority. Think about that. There is a man sitting on the throne of God with all authority. That's awesome. There is a man, the representative head of the new humanity, sitting on the throne of God. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to him. And notice, notice verses 8 and 9. Here you might say, well, what, what will be the manifestation of that authority? Will he destroy the nations? And there are some Christians, I think, who falsely rush to that notion. They want, they want the destruction of the nations. But the destruction of the nations will be delayed because God has an evangelistic plan for the redemption of the nations. Here, the son who has done everything the father has given him to do, that son, that son now is said to merely have to ask the father, and the father will give him the nations for his inheritance. We, we are getting, by the way, this is beautiful, we are getting an inlet into the very inner Trinitarian relationship in the Godhead. That in the councils of eternity, God the Father said to the Son, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Now, we know that this would cost the Son. We know that he would have to ask while hanging on the cross. We know that he had to go the hard road of the cross. Satan would try to shortcut this, wouldn't he? He would say to Jesus in the wilderness, um, bow down and worship me and I'll give you the nations. All their glory, they'll be yours. But the son knew that he had to go the hard road of the cross, taking the sin of the nations on himself. How do, how do the nations, how do the people, how do a people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language become the inheritance of the son? He would take their sin on himself. He would take the wrath of God on himself. He would stand in their place under the righteous judgment of God to redeem them. Um, you know, I think we so easily forget the greatness, we so easily forget the greatness of the Son when we start to look at circumstances around us. Now, Peter forgot this, didn't he? 
when he was up on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, and Peter said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And, and it took the father coming and saying, this is my son. Listen to him. That's, that's what this voice is meant to do for us this morning. There will be, however, also... There will be a day of wrath. Notice verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. There is a day coming when everyone will see that Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. The Apostle John picks up on this in Revelation when um, Jesus tells one of the churches, he says, to him who overcomes, I'll grant to sit with me on my throne to judge the nations. He will execute perfect justice on judgment day. He will pour out his wrath. You know, there are some people, and, and we have to be very careful. We, we walk a very tight line here. We love, we love the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. Oh, my, we love that. We need that. We are, we are lost without that. We love the gentleness of Christ. We need to be gentle like him. We love the patience of Christ, the meekness, the tenderness, the compassion. And yet, there are some people, sadly, in the church who think, that Jesus is going to be less wrathful than the Old Testament prophets sounded. And yet the book of Revelation says it's the wrath of the Lamb. The one who redeems the nations is the one who's going to judge the nations. It's the same Christ. The Lamb that was slain is the line of the tribe of Judah. And the psalmist is predicting his ultimate victory now, notice there is a final voice here, and it would do us well to listen carefully to verses 10 through 12. The, the psalmist, now having set these things out and having explained who is ruling and who is reigning, now turns and he tells us and he tells the nations how to respond. He addresses the kings and the rulers of the earth. He says there in verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be wise. Um, you know, we, no matter who our elected officials are, and it doesn't matter in one sense, um, we are to be praying that God would bring them to a place of brokenness over their sin, a place of conviction, just like we needed, a place where they come to an end of themselves, and a place where they cry out for the wisdom of God that's only found in Jesus Christ. We should be pleading with the Lord for the salvation of rulers and kings. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Um, you know, it's interesting. This is not meant to terrorize us, but it is meant to, to sober us about who this king is. Serve him with fear, rejoice with trembling. There should be a reverence mixed with joyfulness over who this king is. And then notice that the psalmist turns and generally says to all in verse 12, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way but a little. We could read this psalm in a sort of legal way. We could read this psalm as saying, you better shape up, you better get with it, you better fix yourself up, you better, you better shape up and, and, get, to, and get with the kingdom of God, and that's not, that's not what the psalmist does. Now, this is a voice of gentleness and sweetness. Isn't this beautiful? This is a voice, this is, this is a voice to come and embrace the son. Um, 
It's, it's a call for you to come face to face with the Lord Jesus. Kiss the Son. Yes, pay him homage, but embrace him in love. He's, he's altogether lovely. You know, that's, by the way, the Bible everywhere is trying to help you see the glory and the beauty of Christ. It is everywhere trying to stir our hearts up to see he's chief among 10,000. Nobody ever spoke like him. He's the fairest of the sons of men. He's been anointed with the oil of gladness more than his companions. Um, Kiss the son. Very interesting. The only time I know that anyone ever kissed Christ during his earthly ministry was Judas. And that ought to make us ask the question, have I... Have I embraced him in faith? Have I, have I seen his beauty? Have I trusted in him? Am I trusting in him? You know, I love the imagery of the Apostle John leaning back on the very breast of Jesus. What, what affection he must have felt in the Savior to be comfortable enough to do that, that he would come and embrace the bridegroom of his soul, that he would kiss the Son. That's that's what it looks like to kiss the sun. Um, I'd ask you this morning, do you see the glory and the beauty of Christ? Do you see something of it? Are you, are you embracing him? Um, have you said, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly? That's, that's what this is meant to do. Let me, let me to your bosom fly. Wash me, Savior, lest I die. And then notice the end of verse 12 Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled quickly. There will be a day when it will be too late. There will be a day when the, the, the mercies and the calls to kiss the son will come to an end. Um, this is a season, John Calvin says, this is, this is a period of God laughing. Why isn't he dealing with the nations? Why isn't he? executing his wrath because he's calling men and women and boys and girls to come to the sun, to embrace the sun, to kiss the sun. But there is a day coming when his wrath will be kindled and he will execute the rod and he will judge the nations. Notice the last verse, however. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. I want to ask you this morning, if you, if you took an inventory of your life what, what are the things you would, you would conclude um, you, you deem to make you a blessed person? What, what do you value the most? Is it, is it successes or is it your achievements? Is it possessions? Is it family? What, what are those things that we deem, I'm a blessed person because of this? Because this psalm tells us that the, the man or woman, boy or girl who is blessed is the one who trusts in the Son who rules and reigns. Of all the people on the earth, think about this, of all the nations, if you are trusting in the Son, you are blessed. You are in a state of blessedness. All the spiritual blessings of God have been poured out on you. Um, we, would, we would be reminded this morning that God has set his king, the Lord Jesus Christ, on Zion, his holy hill, and we would kiss the Son and embrace him and take refuge in him. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church.